0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. We are just about two weeks away from Retro World Expo in Hartford, Connecticut, and today I would like to announce another person that's going to be joining us there, Ronnie Batik, That's right, one of the retro RGB contributors and my friend is flying all the way from freaking Lebanon to come hang out with everybody, so I am very happy to finally meet him in person. If you see us walking around, come talk music, come talk video games, whatever you got, but this is going to be a very, very cool expo slash hangout session because there's so many awesome people coming, so hope to see you there, but let's jump in and see what we got going on this week. First up, ROM hacker Kaze Emanuar has just put up their fifth annual F3 presentation, which is basically a roundup of their favorite trailers of upcoming retro-inspired ROM hacks or games or anything that has been worked on by the community. So if you're looking forward to anything new coming out that's based on an existing game or maybe even a giant hack of a new game, I would recommend checking this out because there's a bunch of cool stuff in there. And of course, Kaze has done a ton of awesome work, most recently with the N64, so... Definitely a good channel to check out. Next up, Chris from Displaced Gamers has just put up one of his behind the code videos for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles NES game that tries to answer a question that's been asked for well over 10 years now why can't a turtle swim? All, all kidding aside, and obviously shout outs to AVGN for this, that one infamous water level in that game has driven anybody crazy who's tried to play it. I distinctly remember just freaking out, getting frustrated over it when I was a little kid playing it. And then of course seeing the AVGN videos and try to replay it over time. It was definitely, I think we all kind of knew it was broken in that area. But Chris breaks down exactly why it was broken, what it is that you could do to get around it, some other very strange quirks like the uh, the water direction for any kind of the uh, currents that are going through, and of course posts different Game Genie codes and other ways to hack the game to try to change it to make it easier or more repaired or however you want to word it. So um, I always like the behind the code videos. Always. I've talked about it in the interview. Uh, I've talked about it just separately, talking about these individually. But this was one of my favorites because this really hit home because I understood everything that chris was talking about both from the technical side and the gameplay side so uh i would consider this a must watch if you're either a programmer who's into learning how nes games work or if you've even just played the game and you have even the slightest bit of curiosity as to why it was so broken so thanks very much chris and that was definitely one of my favorites Nicole Express has recently put up a blog post talking about her experience with Game Gear to SMS hacks, as well as the same hardware adapter from Apocalypse that I recently showed in the video that I posted, and as always, I really enjoyed Nicole's take on it. I think she just does a great job, much like Chris from Displaced Gamers describing deep technical programming stuff in a way that anybody with some patience could understand. Because even if you don't get the ones and zeros point, you could certainly put it into context of everything that she was talking about. So it does make it pretty cool to understand. But if you're into this stuff, I would definitely read this. And, you know, I maybe would, uh, if you're not as technical, you might want to start with the video I did a while back just to get kind of like an arm's length view on this. But I, I like how Nicole breaked everything down and kind of talked about uh, how these games work and what the technical differences are between them. So uh, if, if you're into this stuff at all, this is definitely something that you would probably want to read through. And Nicole even went back and re updated it and updated it after the fact when she found out a few other things about it so kind of an interesting one i always was kind of obsessed with game gear and master system because i had them as a kid and they were neat but there were always some obvious flaws with them and, and so this stuff was extra interesting to me and i know there's a lot of old school sega fans out there that are interested as well so please check out nicole's blog post which is 100 free no paywall but if you would like to support you could also uh, support on patreon and it's the same content which is something that i'm always a big fan of i don't judge people do whatever they feel like but i I like i like seeing things that are, are at least eventually free to people um but you know this stuff takes a tremendous amount of time so it is really cool to see people get compensated for it as well so thanks nicole This week's podcast is once again brought to you by JLCPCB, and this week we're continuing the discussion on how to design your products around PCB assembly and manufacturing, because it is much different when you're designing stuff that you're going to be hand soldering one or two prototypes versus designing something around mass production, as well as how to deal with stuff in a global part shortage. So let's just pick up right from where we left off last week when we were just nearing the spot in order to play or order but i said i wanted to make one last change picking up right from where we left off last week we have the panelized file that we made ourselves, and let's check out the price so total is $22 which is pretty damn amazing considering what you're getting but let's break this all down so the pcb price is only $2 the smt price for the assembly just $4 in components smt assembly is cheap Setup fee is only $8. This would have been more if you asked JLCPCV to panelize it, which is another reason why I suggest doing it yourself. Not just learning and control, but you have to save a little bit of money. You have to pay for the stencil, but here is what I wanted to talk about as well. The hand soldering labor fee. So in the weekly videos that I show that go through JLCPCB's assembly process, it shows how the final step is any hand soldering that's necessary. And since we're only doing two panels, it's very cheap. But what if you were making a thousand of these, not just two panels? That's when you have to pay attention to designing these products for mass production. So let's check out the fix. We're gonna take that exact same panelized Gerber file, but swap out the through-hole LED for a surface mount one. Now, once again, if you're just talking about making one or two panels, it's really not that big a deal and the price isn't a massive difference. But if this is a project that takes off and you suddenly wanna buy a thousand of them, it's gonna then make a very big difference in price and assembly time, and it's gonna even make it easier on JLCPCB. So let's review the price structure now. PCB price is still $2, and then if you go through everything else, it's still cheap components, or a little bit cheaper actually because the LEDs were cheaper. The SMT assembly fee is still the same, and setup fee is still the same, but there is no extra fee for the through-hole components. So if this is something that you're going to do in large quantities, I would strongly recommend designing around production. So let's save this to the car in order, and then follow up next week to see how they came out. Both the N64 digital and PS1 digital HDMI mods have gotten firmware updates, and the PS1 digital is now updated to the Pixel FX framework. So there's a bunch of stuff to talk about around this, but first, the basics. The new firmware adds motion-adaptive deinterlacing to both, which is very cool for 480i titles. It adds the polyphase scaler that was used on the N64 over to the PS1 digital, and it also has HDR support, added to both and scan lines, the new full CRT filters have been added to the PS1 digital and of course as we've been learning as Mike's been testing with the RetroTank firmwares HDR modes really at least at the moment only designed for use with scanlines so that you can get the extra brightness so that you don't have to keep messing with the brightness settings on your TV every time you want to switch between scan lines and non-scanline content so very cool to see this. But, kind of some history behind it. So, the PS1 Digital was originally made by Dan, Citrus 3000 PSI, and Christoph Chris 2600. They also made the DC Digital, the Time Sleuth, and worked on a bunch of other stuff together. And then, Woozle joined the crew, and they created the three of them together, Pixel FX. But there was a lot of work to be done on the Pixel FX N64 digital, the other products like the Morph that they've been teasing, and of course, you know, there's the existing products that were out there, but then all of that code either needed to be ported over or maybe there could be a hardware limitation, like I think there is with the DC digital. Please don't quote me on that one. Um, but so there was, I guess, a delay that maybe some people were disappointed in that they did, the PS1 digital didn't just immediately get the extra stuff that the N64 Digital got. But it looks like that's all done now. So it's kind of cool because I wasn't really sure if this was ever going to happen. Not a dig at all against the team. It's just there's a lot that goes into this. And porting code isn't like copying and pasting. It's a, whole, it's almost like translating from English to Spanish or something. Actual programmers are rolling their eyes at me now. But non-programmers at least might have a little bit... <laughs> little bit of an insight into this so it's really awesome that this is able to be done and I'm really interested to see uh, now that these are both on the same framework, what cool and neat features are going to be added to them as time goes on. Um, Now in this post, uh, Alex did a screenshot and a a bunch of descriptions of the different editions. So if you want a very good overview, I would absolutely read through this. And then Kristoff posted how to port your your PS1 digital from the original firmware over to the Pixel FX firmware. It's super easy, but the video is there to walk you through every step. So this is very cool. Thanks very much to the team for continuing to support this. Um, You know, it's my personal opinion that none of these things needed to come over. I thought the PS1 digital was excellent as is, but they're here now. So whether you think they needed to be here or not, now you could enjoy them just by doing a free and simple Wi-Fi update. So uh, for more information, check out Alex's post. But thanks to the team for continuing to update this stuff. Now it's time for this week's Mr. News, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I'm going to skim through these, and if you hear anything that piques your interest, or you just want to hear Lou's take on it, please check out his video and, of course, the post here on RetroRGB. First up, Mr. Retrowolf has released episode 16 of the Mr. Core Development video series, which I always think is helpful for people looking to get into this. A Track 17 has gotten driving wheel support on MR working well enough to make a commit to the official MR Linux kernel, which is very cool because that's going to be used or could be used with the upcoming Outrun core, but basically any core that supports analog controls for driving. So I'm very excited about that because I love arcade style racing games. So it's going to be cool to, to try that one out. A Missile Command core is currently in development by Jimmy Stones. Pang and Renegade are both available. Hotego has made the Pang core available for everyone to download. You could just either you go to the GitHub or use the standard update script. And if you are a Patreon subscriber, you could get a beta for Techno's Renegade arcade game. The PlayStation Core has gotten a CD speed-up option, so you could use up to eight X CD speeds to significantly reduce loading times. Um, there's a few games that immediately jump right into it, but uh, I think this is something that I would personally just always try. And then if you see any issues with it, then back it down. But I always like to see these these different hacks, like extra sprite mods, you know, CD speed-up load times. It's you know, it's one of those things that. Any one of these features is cool, but you add them all together and now you really start to see how Mr. is surpassing original hardware in some ways. I'm sure somebody's going to take that out of context and say, Bob said Mr. is always better than real consoles. It's not always. It's a different experience, but I love the extra features. Um, Also, uh, Kari Warriors uh, now has a beta available for it. Um, You could just run it by running your update script. And a notable addition is snack support, so if you want to have the rotary controllers via the custom adapter, that will work as well. So thank you very much for, uh, for that update. And there's a few mis- miscellaneous updates like the tank core, and there's also uh, some tweaks for Athena and fighting golf cores. So as usual, thanks so much to Lou for keeping all of this stuff updated for us. It's so awesome that we get to just go to one spot to get all of these Mr. Updates, because before I was kind of scrolling through a million different accounts and basically doing what Lou does, but not nearly as well. So thank you, Lou. Uh, And of course, please subscribe to his channel. Fixel has now opened the second batch of pre-orders for the 3DO optical drive emulators. There are two to choose from. One is 100% plug and play. You just plug it right back into the digital video slot and you need to do nothing else. You could retain the original CD-ROM drive It's a bit more expensive at $350, but that's basically it. The only thing it won't work with is that weird PC add-on card that I didn't even remember existed until Fixel originally told me about it. And the other one is for an fc one version, Frank Z-1. And I believe it's only compatible with that version now, but it is a no-solder, no-cut installation. So if you have an FZ1 with a dead drive, this is definitely the one for you. It's $100 cheaper at $250. All you do is unbolt everything, unbolt the drive, unhook it, plug this one in in its place. Uh, There's even a bracket so that you could easily mount it inside um, that you could either, I believe, print yourself or just purchase it pre-made. So both of these are awesome. I was in batch number one, so I hope to get the external one to try as soon as it comes out. Um, I want to retain CD-ROM functionality on mine because I really like to have the option for both, but uh, I'm very excited to see the ODE for it. Also, Fixel has posted a video, uh, which I embedded up top here, that shows you how it's going to look and the basic interface, at least at launch day, and also posted speed uh, tests and it looks like the speed is equivalent to a 10x CD-ROM drive. So not only are you going to get the speed boost by skipping CD-seek times, because remember, even if the ODE runs at the exact same speed as the original, original CDs, you had to wait for the laser to scan back and forth across it to hit its correct sector, whereas with ODEs, it's instant. So you have that speed boost plus a speed boost from the actual CD reading. I think that must, and this is speculation here, so Fixel, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in certain consoles, you're limited by the bus speed. So even if you were to hypothetically put a faster CD-ROM drive in it, you or an ODE, you couldn't really increase the speed that much higher. But if the bus speed of the 3DO is higher than whatever the original CD-ROM was locked to, then that would be how you could get a faster loading time. Just guessing on that one, but uh, it makes sense, and it's still, either way, it's awesome. Faster loading times, especially if you have a non-working CD drive, this thing's great. So I'm very much looking forward to trying this out, and thanks to Fixel for continuing to, to go through this project, even during a part shortage. A new retro game engine has just been announced for both the PlayStation 1 and the Sega Saturn, including both of the VDP chips on the Sega Saturn. And this project is being headed up by Gabriel Pyron, who does all of those amazing color hacks and has done a ton of work in the retro scene, and Tiago Cabral, who had ported Sonic the Hedgehog to the Super Nintendo through a custom 2D engine while retaining the same speed and feel. This isn't one of those like graphical hacks where you put Sonic on Mario, which are neat, by the way, but this was... Totally different. So if there were ever two people to head up a project like this, it would definitely be Gabriel and Tiago. And it's very exciting to see what could possibly come out of this. Because while there were certainly a ton of great 2D things on the Saturn, The 3D stuff is probably what most of the focus of the PlayStation library was on. So it's really cool to be able to see exactly what could be coming for this. They've already showed an engine demo running on the Mr. FPGA PlayStation Core. And of course, there's also some real hardware demos as well. So this is something that just lays the groundwork for so much awesomeness coming forth in the future. Dave did a great post laying out everything that you would need to know about this. Uh, And of course, if you want to get a sense of how important a brand new engine would be for something like this, check out the original DF Retro video, which of course is right here in the post, that shows exactly how the Sonic port is working on the Super Nintendo, because it really will give you a sense of, of how absolutely awesome this could be. So... Definitely check out Dave's post if you're interested, and especially if you think you might be able to contribute or maybe you have a game that you're working on that might take advantage of being ported over to the Saturn or the PlayStation 1. Either way, this is always exciting, and you know, even though I'm not a developer and I'm fairly useless when it comes to this stuff, I can at least spread the word and, and hopefully the positivity, because I really think stuff like this could be a game changer down the line when people start using it to port their own games. So thank you very much to Gabriel and Tiago, and I, I can't wait to see what comes of this. Some new cores are now available for the Analog Pockets Open FPGA side, but we need to make sure that we get... These names right for these things, because people seem to keep calling them jailbreak cores. There is nothing jailbreaky about this at all. I don't know if this was analogs marketing that you know that slid that in under the radar, or if that was just the one or two YouTubers that put up their clickbait titles because they wanted people to notice them and think that there was a jailbreak. You know, it annoys me, but I also, you know, I hate the game, not the player, so fine, whatever. But these are not jailbreak cores the reason people describe them as such is because you could now download game gear master system and sg1000 cores to the pocket and load up your roms so from the perspective of i get to put roms on a micro sd card yes just like with the original jailbreak for the original uh what was it the nt mini then the same theory there but this is not a jailbreak these are private cores released that allow you to load roms it's not the same thing if it were a jailbreak you would be able to use the original analog pocket firmware and load roms on it that is not what this is this is just a separate thing that allows you to run your own cores with your own roms Um, still no official word as to where these miraculously came from But it does it does kind of open up some things for discussion. So first, everything that I just said was positive. I have no problems with any of this. I just want to make sure that people know this is not a jailbreak. So that's not a dig against analog. It's not a compliment to them. It's just facts, right? Water's wet, fire's hot. This is not a jailbreak. Period. If you want to look at it that way, cool. But please check some. You know, try to pick your words a little bit better so we could all understand what's going on with this. Also, it does kind of open up. A bit of an interesting discussion because if these cores did come from analog uh, which would make sense because it would promote their open platform it would allow you to play roms without releasing a jailbreak so that they could if any company like nintendo comes after them they could just wink wink nudge nudge hey we didn't do that somebody else this is an open platform we're still locked down like it does it makes sense but it is kind of interesting to see because their platform is open fpga but does that mean people can release release closed source cores on open FPGA? It's kind of an interesting discussion. I'd I'd like to hear what the community had to say about it. Um I said in my my mostly very positive rant last week that it was you know I have almost all good things to say about this, but there are some things that could go very very wrong and there's really only one person that could make it go wrong. So let's let's hope they're they're thinking about the big picture and not just whatever Whatever small cash grab they could possibly make if they wanted to do strange things. But it is interesting. Do you call a platform OpenFPGA but allow closed source cores in it? Does it matter at all? Uh, you know, I think people who have been in the scene long and people who are especially been in development or open source projects, even not even remotely related to gaming at all can kind of see the dominoes fall as to the different paths that things like this could go down. So I want to stay positive because I genuinely loved the Pocket. I'm not a handheld gamer, so I I sent that one back to a friend who let me borrow it. Uh, I'm not going to buy one. I've been blacklisted by them for years, so they sure as hell aren't going to send me one. But it's not for me anyway. I'm not a handheld gamer. But all that said, I, I thought it was amazing. The screen was beautiful. The functionality was great. It's a little heavy, but I don't think most Most people would care about that these days, especially when you're basically carrying around tablets in your pocket as phones. Um, And I do like the open FPGA side of things. I just really want to see this go down the right path. So uh, analog uh, or not, not analog, keep releasing your cores on this because I really do think it'll, it'll help spread awareness. It might motivate more people to port their own cores over. Uh, But it's definitely going to be interesting because you know, are, are you putting your cores over with full functionality? Are they locked down? Is it really not analog? Is there just some, some person out there that that is doing this? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me, but uh, I'm not an FPGA expert. So would love to hear your thoughts, your positive thoughts on that. I really don't care if somebody has super negative things to say because it never adds to the conversation, but mostly awesomeness coming out of this. Uh, I just, Let's try to get our nomenclature correct and uh, and I'm really interested to see what comes down the pipe with this because it's a very interesting platform and certainly a lot of potential for awesomeness. Do you have a Sony PVM monitor with one of those giant pin adapters in the back that kind of look like an old parallel printer cable? If so, you might be able to use that monitor as a CGA monitor for older computers like the Tandy 1000 and anything else that has that older style graphics. That's exactly what Sterling did, and he posted a guide on how to make your own cable. Now, of course, do this at your own risk. We're not responsible if you explode your PVM because you plugged your RGB cable into the wall socket, etc., etc. But basically, as long as you have a cheap multimeter where you could just tone out different points, this should be a fairly easy installation. And I don't believe that soldering is even required because Sterling linked to a punch-down adapter style thingy. Uh, but basically, if you just follow the guide and double check to see if you have the same uh, same port in the back and then, of course, follow the guide on which cable to buy, cut one end off, use the punch down, uh, it's all pretty straightforward and pretty easy. And it's pretty cool that something fairly cheap like this can turn your monitor into something even more useful than it already was Uh, i had a tandy 1000 growing up i gave mine to justin aka goodwill hunter who i think he's still keeping it safe for me someday i'd love to go back and and make sure that it still works boot it up one more time just to kind of see for play a round of king's quest and zaxon or something for nostalgia's sake. but uh, i don't have the room for that here however if i had a pvm with this input I might consider grabbing that back and connecting it all up just because of ease of use and stuff like that. So thanks very much to Sterling for posting all of this. Um, if you have one of those ports on the back of your uh, your PVM, you might want to look into this anyway. Because, heck, maybe someday you'll end up with a CGA RGB adapter. So people just now, 28 years later, have discovered that you could play as the bosses in a two-player mode for Super Punch-Out on the Super NES. And it was originally discovered by Unlisted Cheats on Twitter and confirmed by a whole bunch of other people. But basically, you go through and have both controllers connected. And you can even do this on the Mr. FPGA if you'd like as well. But basically on the title screen is when you start holding combinations of buttons on both controllers. And then it allows you to go through and select which player you want to play as on both sides. And then you could end up playing as the boss characters against somebody else. And they even have some of their own special moves and stuff. So this is pretty neat. You know, whenever new things are discovered by uh, about old stuff, it's always kind of interesting. But to go almost 30 years without realizing this uh it, it's kind of interesting to see or maybe it was released before and we all forgot about it and it's buried on some dead forum somewhere and now this info is just coming back around so if you're the person that discovered it 20 years ago you know are bad but this certainly seemed to be new news to to a lot of people out there um so if you go through and you check out easy Goodnight's post you can see all of the different screenshots the different things that are available and of course there's even a um Up plus X and A could make Gabby J go out of range uh, and restore some health. It's kind of neat. So you can kind of see some of the different secret player moves or second player moves and all of that stuff. So I'm interested to see what other things people discover out there. But if you're a fan of the game Super Punch-Out, definitely give this one a try. Brook has just announced a new controller adapter that allows you to interface modern wireless controllers with original PlayStation 1 and 2 consoles as well as the PS Classic. So essentially it's Brook's version of the Blue Retro adapter but without much more information on it. So this one's going to kind of be interesting because the homebrew scene already nailed it with the Blue Retro adapters. Low latency very good compatibility. The only thing that you could say is availability because of part shortage and being able to just make these in larger quantities. So I'm really interested to see how Brooke is going to keep up with this, because they don't post any of their lag test numbers, and I'm not really even sure how they do the latency testing. So, it's kind of going to be interesting to see if they're able to keep up with the homebrew side of things. I hope so. I'm a big fan of their products. I hope this thing absolutely kicks ass. So, uh, I had spoken to somebody at the company. Hopefully, they'd be willing to ship one out so we could do some lag testing on it. I would probably use it as an example for both Mr. Lag Testing, the same way pork does those results which are extremely accurate but i would also want to do an led test as well just for the heck of it just to kind of compare different methods and see but it certainly does look promising i'll say that uh it could connect a wide variety of different controllers and you know the functionality with ps1 and 2 as well as the classics kind of neat so uh you know My caution is only because I'm a nerd, and it's my job to ask questions about these things. I'm a fan of Brooke's products. I think the $40 price point is excellent. You could order them right now through Focus Attack, but my only hesitation is that I know so many people that would love to buy this adapter only after they know that it's not going to be a laggy mess. So it would be very cool if Brooke would step up and start posting these results um, so hopefully I could, I could kind of help supplement that. And there's other people in the scene that I'd love to see do more videos on lag testing and, and kind of add more of their test results to the, the Mr. Latency test sheet. Cause remember, that's not just for Mr. It will also give you an idea of just the latency of the controller or adapter itself. Yes, of course it'll apply to the full Mr. Setup, but it's, it's probably an excellent resource for just measuring controller adapters and things like that. The only other thing to add, uh, if you want to look at a very odd video, Brooke produced a rap video to promote the Wingman PS2 adapter. I just don't get it. Uh, maybe I've maybe I've finally hit the age where I just don't see the the fun and stuff like this. But I think I would have rolled my eyes at this at every age. It's probably especially as a kid, to be honest with you. So, with respect to Brooke, I don't get it. I mean please let me know in the comments watch the the, the rap and, and see what you think but i just i don't get it why is the guy in jail why is he handcuffed i i don't so many questions so many questions brooke maybe consider spending your budget on a lag testing kit and not actors for a weird rap video unless that's you all in it if that was you all you know trying to share your, your music with the world by all means then that would be badass go for it But, uh, yeah, did you pay for that? Anyway, thanks very much to Ronnie for the post. All the details you need are right in here. I saved this for last in case anybody doesn't care, but please just listen to the first 10 seconds. Those N64 shells available on AliExpress are from a notorious clone company, and they even cloned the box of a different shell seller. So if you wanted to support a good company who is trying their best to do everything right, Check out the N64 Kickstarter for the replacement shell. It's the same stuff I talked about a few weeks ago. Prices are, are very similar between the two, um, and I'll get into more details later. But basically, avoid the AliExpress, eBay shells unless you want to. Unless you don't mind supporting clone companies. Uh, I hope you mind supporting clone companies. So here's a bit of the story. Um, the shells themselves. People said they had started to order. They were coming in, and they were. Okay quality. They weren't garbage, but they weren't certainly nothing like the Retro Game Restore. Those are amazing quality shells. And those probably aren't clones because there hasn't been an exact product like that. However, Bitfunks cloned the box of those awesome other cases that were out for the Dreamcast and the PlayStation. So that means that while yeah, you could say, oh, who cares about the box? All of these ones that you're seeing on eBay now, so U.S. sellers are buying them from AliExpress and reselling them, if they show the box, it leads people to believe that it's the same quality of the other ones that are out there, and it's not. So it's just as scumbaggy as everything else that the person behind Bitfunks does. It's so gross to me. Um, so I just I feel terrible that I bought one, but I honestly didn't know. And apparently a bunch of the sites... Uh, that are selling on AliExpress are all owned by Bitfunks. So that's one of the many reasons why I use a P.O. box for stuff like that. If that piece of crap is willing to steal products and, and, and ruin people's reputations, then I'm sure they'd be willing to dox me. So I'm very glad I had that sent elsewhere. But awful, awful that this happened. I'm sorry for accidentally promoting them. So to make up for that, uh, I've decided to promote the N64 Kickstarter on RetroRGB. Now, up until this point, I've had a pretty solid policy about not really trying to promote Kickstarters, unless it's something that I'm involved in, you know, peripherally. I've, I've never done an exact Kickstarter myself, but I've worked with teams of people who have done it. I've worked with people who have, this is now their third Kickstarter, and one and two went perfectly. So, you know, I think Trog Tech is going to do their best. Everything looks like it's fine, but I want to see them succeed because I want to see a company who is actually trying to support the retro gaming world succeed, not people who are have a notorious years-long reputation for stealing from the scene. So I have replaced the banners. Thank you, Justin, from Console Kits for helping. As always, I'm useless without you, but... The, the banners on the N64 section and, and probably a bunch of other sections of the website are going to be added to uh, to promote this. Now, I want to be completely transparent with everybody because I want to make sure my intentions are very clear. I'm not getting paid for this. Trog Tech offered to pay for advertising, very nice of them, and it was very much appreciated. But this is me making up for mistakenly promoting the wrong people. So I'm taken one for the team there is zero money zero affiliation and uh, i i mean this with love and respect i don't really know trog tech this is me taking a chance on a company that's at the very least trying their best to be everything that we would want them to be the opposite of bitfunks So um, as soon as the Kickstarter is over, I will be replacing those with regular ad banners again. Uh, I liked the eBay ones that were on there because I had them programmed, painstakingly programmed over the years to have stuff that's relevant to whatever's on the page. So it wasn't just an ad, it was often very helpful. So it would even say on a lot of the pages, like, hey, if you want one of these, just look to your right. It would be right there. But eBay changed everything around as usual, screwed over everybody as usual who had been using their previous APIs. So if I have to go back and manually redo every page, I'm probably going to be doing it uh, more focused on promoting people in the scene. So if you were looking to purchase ad space on Retro RGB, um, please let me know. Reach out privately. We'll figure out costs and you know time period and stuff like that. But I want to make up for my mistake, and I want to uh, promote the Trogtech N64 case Kickstarter first for free on there, just to try to, to say I'm sorry. to Because, you know... If you promote something, Bitfunks didn't steal those cases, but then they stole the boxes. And you're essentially funding a clone company to do more awfulness. So I I feel awful. I, I really, maybe I should have just waited until mine came in to promote it. But a lot of other people were talking about them. So I figured, get the word out and see what happened. But I guess on the flip side, if I didn't get the word out and have people start talking, I wouldn't have known that they were using the cloned boxes until now. So... Yeah. I don't know. I, I think there's just no way out of this one. I screwed up. I'm going to try to make up for it. Uh, so as long as Trog Tech delivers a decent product, you know, hopefully I can try to help. It looks like it. it. It looks like they're really going to come through with this. So just wanted to have full disclosure, tell everybody exactly what I thought about this and post a link to the, the right one to support. Let me know your thoughts in the comments. I'm always listening. If you think I did this wrong, if you just take one second to not be an ass about it, I will listen and take your feedback seriously. So thank you all. And, uh, you know, sorry for promoting awfulness, but hopefully I can make up for it by promoting a new company that's trying to make really good shells for us. Well, that's it for this week. There was a bunch of other stuff that I missed that I wanted to post, that I wanted to live stream about, but I ended up having something happen over the weekend. Everything's totally fine, but it set me back like four full days. So I'm going to have to spend the next couple of weeks catching up with all of that stuff, and there's a bunch of stuff I need to get done before Retro World, before I go hang out and see all of you. So hopefully I'll be able to catch up with the interviews and with some more live streams and stuff, but I'm definitely doing my best. So thank you all for your patience, and of course and especially thank you all to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping the weekly podcast, all of the -the behind-the-scenes research, the website, and everything else alive. So... If you want to figure out how to support either monetarily or by no cost to you whatsoever, please just go to the support page on the website. Thank you all very much, and I'll see you next week.